Galatians. We're in chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 24. I'm going to go through 6, 5. That's our text this morning. Um, turn Galatians chapter 6. I'm sorry. We'll turn, we'll turn to 5. We'll go a couple verses and jump into chapter 6. Uh, Bible's in the back if you need some. There's some back there. You can just go up and grab one. If you don't have one, of course, it's your gift. It's our gift to you. Galatians chapter 5, verse, starting at verse 25. We'll go 25. Forget what that says. Hear the word of the Lord, the inspired, infallible, and authoritative word of God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Verse 5, for each one will have to bear his own load. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So we are in Galatians 6. Again, we'll jump into that. Number 16 of 18 sermon series that we started couple of months ago. So you got this sermon and two more for those of us who went to public school. Uh, and what I want to do is, as we look into this text, I, I want to do something a little differently. There's going to be like two mini sermons today, okay? Uh, we're going to look at this text, but before we do it, what I want to do is I want to spend a little bit of time before the text and, and bring up some things that we haven't really looked at or not in depth and, and point something out because I think by doing so, it will help us understand this text better and actually bring greater application to what God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul. So bear with me. When we get to the actual sermon outline, uh, we'll go through it quickly. You guys can discuss it in community groups as you meet over the next few weeks. So if you remember, the Apostle Paul began his book defending his apostolic authority. You need to remember that. His calling and his apostolic authority was... And that came from Christ himself. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. He wasn't a Johnny-come-lately apostle, as some would say. And he actually spent three years, as the other apostles did, uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 17. I got my calling, my authority, my apostolic authority, directly through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And he's also defending, not only his calling, but he's defending the very message of the gospel. Okay, the reformers would call that first the formal principle where the authority alone rests in the apostolic authority and the scriptures alone. And then the material would be the actual gospel himself. And we talked about how the message of the gospel that Paul is declaring and making sure the Galatians understood was answering the most important question that a person can ask. The most important question and the greatest need that mankind needs. And that is, how can a man or a woman be made right with God? Paul is clear. Remember this verse. If anything you remember, as we study this book together, verse by verse, is chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we, Jewish folks, who have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Why? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The word justified, very important. Remember, there's two points or two aspects to it. 
It has to do with being legally standing right before the very bar of God's justice. God is holy. God is pure. God is just. Therefore, God must punish sin. In order to be right with God, my sin debt must be paid, and I must be righteous. But I'm not righteous. In fact, I'm a guilty sinner. Justification, therefore, has two elements. One is when we believe on the Lord Jesus, we repent of our sins, we trust, we rely, we count on him, relying on him alone, his person, his work on the cross, we are forgiven of our sin. Our our sin debt has been paid. Number two, we have the righteousness of Christ and is imputed or reckoned by faith, accounted to the believer's account. It's It's an accounting term. We're not righteous, we're sinners who are guilty, but by faith we're forgiven and Christ's perfect life is then encountered to our account. He alone lived the perfect life. He alone can atone for sin. He alone can give us the righteousness that's required. You can't earn it because we all fail and break God's moral law. And if not for the initiative of God, if not for the mercy and love of God, we would all be doomed. And Paul preached that message to the Galatian church when he planted them in chapters 13 and 14 of Acts. But Judaizers came in, you know the story, and they were teaching in order to be a good Christian, a right Christian, a full Christian, you have to also adhere to the Mosaic law. That's what Paul is talking about. You have to to adhere to the Mosaic law, beginning with what? The rite of circumcision, which is the seal and sign of the Old Testament. And Paul makes it very clear, chapter 2, verse 16, is by faith alone. The formal principle, I'm preaching this gospel to you. Trust what I'm saying because I have come in the authority of God himself. And then in first chapters 3 and 4, he actually defends this pure gospel by pointing to the Old Testament. And he says, the cross was sufficient for our righteousness even as far back as Abraham, way before the law was given. Chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, It was counted, imputed, reckoned, that's our term, to him as righteousness. Abraham believed when God spoke to him and said, from your seed, from your offspring, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to bless the whole world from you. And Abraham believed and it was given to him the righteousness necessary for salvation. And part of the gospel defense that we've been pointing to, and I want to make it really clear as we launch into this, this next part of this series is, and we've seen this over the past two weeks, is that we've been set free. There's a freedom. There's a freedom that comes with our justification, being made right with God by faith in Jesus. We're free from the slavery of sin. We're free from the penalties and the power of sin. We're free from this broken world that will one day be gone. We're free from the curse of failing to keep God's standard, God's law. There's a curse, but Christ became a curse for us. Chapter 3, verse 13. Therefore, we're free from condemnation, Romans 8, 1. We're free from the wrath of God. We're free from the power of darkness. This is the freedom that we receive when we have been justified. It's very important you understand that. Okay, And we're also freed with all that of trying to earn our way into the presence of God, into acceptance of God, into forgiveness. We're free from trying to earn it because we can't. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Freedom is the outcome, a major outcome, of our justification, all the work of Christ. And Paul wants us to know, though, as we 
get into this next text where I want you to see that our freedom does not mean that we get to do whatever we want. That's not freedom. Living for self is not freedom. It's actually a form of slavery. Back to bondage. We're now free to be what? Slaves of Christ. Free to be what we were created to be and to do. And that's to love God and to love others. Our our hearts have been changed. Our desires have been changed. and, And the way we live has to be changed. From the formal principle, the truth, the authority of Scripture... To, to the material principle, which is the, 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 the truth of the gospel in chapters 3 and 4, we get to the ethical reality and how we live in chapters 5 and 6. Look with me in chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ freed us. That's the original language. That's what I mean. For freedom, Christ freed us. And the only thing that counts is not moralism, not trying to earn my way into salvation, into my justification, but our freedom, what counts, look at chapter 5, verse 6, is faith working through what? Love. We are justified by faith alone, the reformers would say, but faith that justifies is never alone. There's the outworking of love that comes from our faith in Christ and the work of Christ. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. You were called to freedom, but, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Slavery is equated to being under the law, relying upon the law for your justification. It's self-justification. It's works-based theology. It's works-based righteousness. We said the flesh is that, that part of us that wants to resist God. Very important you know this. And it wants to go back under that motivational system of moral performance as a way of identifying us with God, God's children to be our identity and, and a way in which we approach God. We wanna, the flesh wants us to go back to works-based acceptance. That's what the flesh wants. Pastor Ricky did a great job last week talking about the flesh. But freedom, the promise, justification by faith alone, Christ living in us, produces love for God, love for others. And what Ricky said last week, showed us last week, it bears the fruit of the Spirit. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. We learn that the flesh and the Spirit are opposed to each other. There's a battle within us to go back under this law-based motivation, identity with God, to living in our justification, the freedom That we have, verse uh, 18 of chapter 5. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not what? Under the law. Last week, we looked at the deeds of the flesh. Four categories, you remember. Sensual, sexual sins. Two, spiritual natures, idolatry. Three, there were personal natures, enmity, strife, fits of anger, dissension. And then the fourth category was self-indulging, the drunkenness and, and orgies, which really means heavy drinking and abuse. But the fruit of the Spirit, singular, right? The fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits, is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Verse 23, against such things, against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, verse 24 of chapter 5, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now notice, chapter 5, verse 24, notice, crucifying the flesh is related to the degree in which we what? 
know we belong to God. Well, how? Why? By walking and living and keeping in with step with the Spirit, understanding and declaring we're completely justified, declared not guilty. We have the righteousness of Christ that's been credited to us by no works of our own. That's how you know you're walking in the Spirit. What is the Spirit? John 16 says that the Spirit of God that dwells in us shows us the beauty and incalculable worth of Christ. Jesus said, he will take what is mine and he'll make much known about me. The Holy Spirit's going to teach us and show us and remind us that we've been justified by faith alone, not go back under that moral performance identity. And you need to see that clearly. Romans chapter 8, verse 13 says this. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, I said all that because I want you to get this. Okay? It's not simply saying, I'm not doing this anymore. It's not simply saying, I'm going to work real hard with my own will to stop doing the deeds of the flesh. It's done by the Spirit. It's not simply moral restraint. Because moral restraint doesn't get to our messed up hearts. Against such things, there is no law. You can legislate morality, and we need to do that. Those people say, we can't legislate morality. Really? Then murder's okay. Go kill everybody. So we do. But what you can't legislate is the heart. You can cut down on crime, but you can't change the heart. The Holy Spirit, they change the heart. Right? Okay? The Holy Spirit changed the heart. To crucify the flesh is not just to refuse to do something wrong. It's more than that. You should put your will against not doing the flesh. Don't get me wrong. It's not like, you know, I'm just not going to do anything. But the motive of the flesh, listen, the motive of the flesh that yields the sinful deeds that we just read is self-justification. The very thing Paul's been arguing about throughout this letter. So sexual sins, for the moment, for the moment, and it's deceptive, brings relief to my empty heart, to my broken heart, to my hurting heart. It is my way of self-justification. For the moment, I feel good about myself. And then comes the shame. Idolatry, things that may be good but become ultimate things, are my way of trying to find purpose and meaning in life outside the gospel. Category three, enmity and anger. Why do we do that? Because I'm trying to get my way. You're standing in the way of my personal goals that I believe I need to have and to feel in order to feel what? Validated. Valued. Walking in the flesh. And what happens is we, we, we tend to chase all the effects that these works and deeds of the flesh produce rather than to what's really going on. Self-justification. Paul is saying there's a major difference between a morally restrained heart, something external, stop doing this, relying upon the law, and a supernatural, internal transformation of the heart that's resting in the gospel. Okay? Paul is saying there's a major difference between a morally restrained heart, an external work, I've got to stop doing this, and a supernatural internal transformation of the heart resting in the gospel. The fruit of the Spirit grows in us supernaturally, internally, symmetrically as we apply by the Spirit the gospel to our, our already justified hearts. We talk about it here all the time, preaching the gospel to ourselves. 
Sexual sins will lose its pull on me when Christ is my supreme satisfaction. Idolatry will lose its grip on my heart when Christ is my greatest treasure. Drunkenness and addiction will not control me when Christ is my ultimate pleasure. Enmity, anger, and divisions will not overtake me when Christ is my all in all. Flesh and slavery and bondage are products of me trying to justify myself by keeping the law and even by law breaking. Internal gospel growth, spiritual fruit bearing is when I apply the free gift of God's grace and I rest upon the work of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. His love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his acceptance, and his imputed righteousness that I could never, ever earn on my own. And if obedience, we're going to talk about obedience in a minute. If obedience is not coming from a heart of unconditional love and acceptance, but moral strength, it's not going to allow the love of God, the the work of the Holy Spirit, the love for God, the love for others to live in us. Fleshly, law-abiding, trying to earn your justification will not produce the fruit of the Spirit. But when the fruit of the Spirit is there, according to our text, internal gospel growth is there, it actually fulfills the law. Fulfills the law of love. Fulfills the law of loving God and loving others. And that's what Paul's been talking about up to this point. And I want that firmly in our mind as Paul moves from this work of the flesh against the work of the Spirit in our own hearts. He's moving now to the work of the flesh and the work of the Spirit within community. What does that look like when we are together? That's what Galatians 5 verse 24 and 6 and all of 6 really is. So turn there. We're going to hit it quickly. Restore gently, bear burdens lovingly, and evaluate accurately. Those are the three movements, okay? So with that in mind, Paul says in chapter 5, verse 25, we live by the Spirit, preaching Christ, preaching the gospel. Let us also keep in step. Let's walk that way. Let us not, what? Become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Okay? Again, this antithesis of the Holy Spirit life and then the work of the flesh and how it relates to the body of Christ. He'll go on to say brothers in the next verse. The word conceit literally means vainglory, empty honor. It denotes someone who has this really high opinion of themselves. It's, it's vain, it's empty, it's false, it's an illusion. That, that kind of should, should stop us for a minute. Just, just think about this principle here. Our conduct, we just heard about the refugees, our our conduct, our understanding of other people is largely determined by the opinion of ourselves. Not that that should be, but that's what conceit means. Being conceited is is a sense of insecurity, uh, an assumed absence of honor and worth leading to, to need to prove myself to myself and to others around me. According to Paul, when we are conceited, we tend to do two things. Look at the text. Provoking one another and envying one another. Provoking is is a competition, a challenge. Envy is saying you have something that I want or I want you not to have something. Provoking is is someone who is convinced of their own superiority. I challenge you on that. I'm better than you. Envy is the opposite, inferiority, saying I don't feel worthwhile and therefore you and the things that you have, I need to have what you have. Or I want what you have in order to feel valued and, 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 and worthwhile. 
The natural state of the heart outside of the gospel, walking not in the gospel, seeks justification without the gospel. Superiority and inferiority are the forms of conceit. Self-absorbed, not focused on Christ and the gospel. Not focused on all that he has done for us, but on how others make me feel and how others make me look. You see what he's saying? What is the root of all this? Works righteousness. Both superiority and inferiority are based upon what you do. Trying to gain worth at the expense of others. Gain an identity by either being better than other people or loathing them in despair. What is needed is gospel-centered humility. Humility. C.S. Lewis, humility is not, some, is not thinking less of yourself or even more of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Beating oneself up, beating oneself up or self-confidence are not marks of, of gospel-centered humility. They're rejection of the gospel. And if, if that's you and that's me and that is someone who is dealing with this provoking and this envy and this conceitedness, don't try verse, chapter 6, verse 1. Remember, there's no numbers in the original, right? So the, the, the chapter divisions and the verses came after. This is one letter. And when Paul jumps into chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Brothers, rather than conceit, provoking, and envying in this superiority attitude, an inferior attitude, if anyone is caught in a trespass or transgression, you are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch. On yourself, lest you to be tempted. You can't move from 5.25 to 6.1 without a gospel identity. The gospel properly understood makes us neither prideful nor self-disdaining. It keeps us humble and confident. We're justified in Christ. Our moral deeds, according to our own justification, are but filthy rags. How can, I, how can I be self-righteous when I and you deserve hell and wrath, but we are justified by Christ? We become his, we belong to him, right? We belong to him. I'm fully and completely loved, received, accepted, forgiven. I look at the cross, I see my sin, the brutal thing that God had to do in dying on a cross for me. I look back at the cross and I see that I'm loved, I'm valued, I'm eternally secured. I can't be superior or inferior if I keep the gospel at the center. The gospel creates a new man, a new woman, a new identity, a new self-image. You see that? I'm reminded I'm a sinner saved by grace. I am loved and honored by the one, the only one in the universe that really matters, the God himself. So the gospel will give me a boldness, but also a great humility. And now I can move to chapter 6, verse 1. I can truly restore a brother or a sister caught in a transgression. The word caught is, is a word that's used to caught by surprise. It's not a continual, rebellious, I don't want to listen, I'm a hardhead, I don't want to hear the truth kind of sin. It's someone who has fallen into an unexpected sin. It's the idea of being caught and trapped, stumbles into the transgressions. By the way, the word transgression, trespass, means a stepping out of the path. Think of the Apostle Peter. Do you think, you don't have to answer, just keep it to yourself, unless you want to shout out, I don't care. Do you think the Apostle Peter, when he said to Jesus, I'm going to die with you, and then when Jesus was taken into custody and brought to 
Caiaphas and brought around, do you think he went to the barrel where the, he was staying warm, thinking, I'm here because I'm looking forward to and wanting to deny the Lord? I don't think that's the case. I think Peter was so full of himself that he really thought, you know, I want to watch what's going on. I'm going to mind my own business, and, and everything's going to be good. But what happened? He got caught out there, did he? You belong to him, not me. No, oh, yeah. Three times. It doesn't mean, it, it, it doesn't mean if anyone's caught in any transgression, it doesn't mean like all of a sudden now you're the sin police, right? You're, you're the sin detective. Pastor, I saw you doing 47 and a 45. I just thought I'd tell you. You'll be talking to me all day long. This five-mile grace period is nowhere in the code, but just so you know. Paul said, no, you who are spiritual should do that. You know why? Because you're the one who is walking in the spirit. Now, commentators are all over the place with this one. I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just simple. I think what he means, you who are spiritual are the ones that are walking and living by the Holy Spirit. I, 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 you know, it's not, it's not the pastor. It, it's not the deacons. It's not the saints in the sense of those who have passed on, who got some sort of sainthood. I think it's those who understand they've been justified by faith alone, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and and they are walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And if you're doing that, you are then, have a special responsibility to take the initiative, to, to reconcile, to restore those who have been caught in an error. And how do we do it? Look what it says. Restore them what? Gently. The word restore, to put in order comes from, from the medical field as well to, to set a fracture or a dislocated bone. They use it in the world of fishing when it talks about mending the nets. Therefore, the restoration should be done sensitively and considerately, considerably and, and with no hint of self-righteous superiority. That's why you need to be walking in the Spirit. And we do it gently. You know, the word gently is found here in this text and also in the fruit of the Spirit. Gently does not mean weakly. It's not weakness, it's meekness. Now, there's a big difference between weakness and meekness. Meekness is power, calm, power under control. It is the wild horse horse that's been tamed. It's not that you can't confront. It's not that you can't go. He's saying, you know, if you're caught, restore. You, there's a boldness there, but there's a calmness. There's power that's under control. Do it meekly. Meekness and harshness and critical spirit don't mix. Luther said this, run onto him, reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words, and embrace him with motherly arms, end quote. Sadly, sometimes we, we like to beat people up. We have a tendency to do that. Um, I think sometimes we, we, uh, we don't treat people well who are caught. Sometimes we ignore it. Or we either condemn them or we ignore them. We either are harsh toward them or we just make believe they don't exist. One commentator says this, when Christians are caught in sin, they do not need isolation or amputation. They need restoration, end quote. To put a bone back in place will bring some pain. I've had shoulders dislocated. Let me tell you, 
It hurt while it was out, and it hurt going back in. But it began the healing process. It means we are to confront even when it will be painful, but our restoration must always, always have this trajectory of restoration. Church discipline, same thing. Restoration. Change life. Change direction. Come back to the sheepfold. Come back to Christ. But those who think they are inferior kind of rejoice quietly when they see the sins of other people. Why? Because if you're inferior, I look better than you at this moment. I had this inferior complex, and now I see your sin. You know what? It gives me a little ego boost, right? My fragile ego is, is picked up because I may not be that bad. And if you have an inferiority complex or a superiority complex, people caught in a sin, you have, what do you think? First thing, you should be like me. You, it wouldn't happen to you. So either you're inferior, like, oh boy, I guess I ain't the only one look at you. Or like, why don't you just do as I do? I wake up every morning and read my Bible. If you just did that, you wouldn't happen. Gospel identity allows me to be humble and bold, yet also to meet the needs of others, to meet them where they are, lovingly helping them to lift them up. I think that's why Paul says, keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. Listen, he's saying gospel restoration restores the fallen, but helps us to keep humble because we recognize our fallibility, our our propensity to sin. We realize, those who are spiritual, that we too can be tempted and fall. If you know your own heart, you know your own desires, you know the struggles within your own heart, you will know the battle and you will recognize that you are capable of similar or equal sin. So you will restore the one gently and kindly because you recognize today I'm lifting my brother up. Tomorrow he may be lifting me up. Our sense of worth is in who we are in Christ Galatians 3.26, I'm a child of God. I can be confident in that because all that Christ has done. But it is only through faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness, therefore I need to be humble. Restore gently. Number two, bear burdens lovingly. Look at verse two. Bear burdens another. Bear one another's burdens. By the way, that's an imperative. It's not whether you think you should do it. It's a command, not an option. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now the obvious and immediate context is the one who has fallen and caught in a trespass. We are to help them. It's a burden. But it's not only that. <coughs> the word burden, baros, means literally a heavy, a heavy, heavy weight or a stone that was required to be carried a long distance. Too heavy. It has come to mean any oppressive and arduous and hardship that is just crushing you, difficult to bear. And all of us have had burdens like that, right? Sorrow and worry and doubt and failure and poverty and loneliness, physical and mental challenges, divorce, disability, depression, family crisis, lack of employment, and I can go on and on and on because Christians are not exempt to heavy burdens. And many times when we face burdens, and I've been there, we need a helping hand, right? We need someone to come along. 
Yes, God is our refuge. Yes, God is our rock. Yes, God is our fortress. But many times God will bring, God will bring other believers alongside you and help carry, take one end. We're all taking end to get you through the burden. But if you're conceited, bearing burdens becomes a time for you to judge them, not carry burdens. What I've experienced in years of ministry, sometimes folks become very discouraged, maybe, maybe very downcast and depressed, because what they're trying to do is carry this heavy burden alone. It wasn't meant for you to carry alone. Sometimes, on the opposite end of that, we want help to carry our burden, but we're afraid because there are people around us not walking in the Spirit, but in the flesh, and we feel judged. And therefore, no one's helping anyone. I know sometimes there needs to be a conversation. I've helped you with your burdens, and you keep going back to these heavy burdens, and, you know, we need to look at your checkbook. I get that, but that's different than, you know, superiority and self-righteous attitudes. Again, that's not gospel identity, walking in the Spirit, receiving our justification and our righteousness by faith alone in the work of Christ alone. Gospel identity means that we do not need to keep all our troubles to ourselves. This idea of self-sufficiency is getting worse and worse in our culture. It's not a mark of bravery. It's a sign of pride. Together we carry each other's loads. And I got to say, and I say it on behalf of all the pastor elders here, I'm sure, we're honored to serve such a church that is willing to pick up and help lots of people in this church. We've seen lots of people praying Picking up heavy burdens, words of encouragement and sympathy, cleaning houses, bringing meals, sharing a book, helping people carry those heavy loads. And if we, who are walking in the Spirit, see someone struggling on this weight of trouble, we are too commanded to put our shoulders to the task. Dr. Tim Keller says this, good advice. You cannot help with a burden unless you come very close to the burdened person. Standing virtually in their shoes and putting your own strength under the burden so its weight is distributed on both of you, lightening the load for the other person. So in the same way, a Christian must listen and understand and physically, emotionally, and spiritually take up some of the burden with the other person, end quote. He's reminding us that burden bearing is always substitutional. And whenever we bear one another's burden, look what the text says, we're fulfilling the law of Christ. Okay, bear with me one more time as I say. The ceremonial laws of God were fulfilled in Christ. The feasts, the the festivals, the dietary laws. But we are called to walk in God's moral law. But we're not under moral law of God in the sense that we have to obey God in order for him to love me, in order for him to forgive me, in order for him to accept me. We are not under God's moral laws to be received and accepted by God because Christ fulfilled the law of God for us, okay? But neither are we over the law of God that we decide what's morally right and wrong. We see that in our culture all the time. Whether it's legislatively or whatever, they're going to decide what's right and wrong. No, 
God has declared what's right and wrong. We're not under the law. We're not over the law. But the moral standard of God, which he gives to all human beings, our road in which we walk empowered by the Spirit and motivated by love, love for God and love for others. We should never, ever get trapped back into legalism, back into under the law, and trying to be accepted and loved by God by works. It's by the work of Christ alone. We are forgiven, justified, righteousness given to us as a gift of grace and out of gratitude and worship and love, we obey God. Paul said this in chapter 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're called to keep the law of love, the law of Christ, the things that Christ taught us. Not just love, but how does love and what does love look like? If, if we get it right, I've said this before, let me say it again. If we get it right and we're motivated in gratitude and love, we'll understand First John, that the love of God, we keep his commandments, excuse me, and his commandments are not burdensome. We want to please the one who died for us, rose for us. We want to be, love and serve and, and obey the one who, who went to such extremes to bring us into his family. I heard this week, I jotted it down, I don't even know where I heard it. There's a difference between obeying the moral law of God as an abstract than obeying the lawgiver. I thought that is so good. I want my children, my grandson, to listen to, my, to, listen to me and do as I ask him to do it, but not simply because I said it, but because we love him. See, there's such a difference. If we call ourselves Christians, we have no desire to follow the commands of Christ. If you love me, keep my commandments. We're kidding ourselves. Do what the Bible tells us. Examine yourself to see whether in the faith, t- faith, test yourself. The law of Christ is to love. I get that. A new commandment I give you, Jesus said, you love one another. Just as I have loved you, love one another. Yes, the law of love. We cannot gain acceptance by keeping the law, yet once we've been accepted, we obey the moral law of God. We are accepted, given the Spirit, and now we what? Obey. Not in order to be saved, but because we already are justified. I used this illustration once. I'm going to use it again. It'll last time you hear it, maybe for a little while anyway. I love it. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson says this. Love is what law commands, and the commands are what love fulfills because love requires direction and principles of operation. Love is a motivation, but it is not self-interpreting direction. We don't make that decision. Commandments are the railroad tracks on which the life empowered by the love of God poured into our hearts by the Spirit runs. Love empowers the engine. Law guides the direction, the moral law of God. The notion that love can operate apart from the moral law of God is a figment of your imagination. It is not only bad theology, it is poor psychology. It has to borrow from law to give eyes to love. Once we get the gospel right, once we get the motive right, justification by faith alone in Christ alone, and once we, get to, once we know the motive is love, we can live in the freedom and the joy of knowing and obeying the one who loved us and gave his life for us. Grace enables us to love him, to love others, to live a life pleasing to the Lord. But at the end of the day, when we rest our head on the pillow, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You got that? The only grounds of our sufficiency, the only grounds of our righteousness 
only grounds of our forgiveness when we fail is Christ. We belong to him, okay? That's very important. Paul is saying, listen, when the love of Christ in the gospel is our motive, we can restore a fallen brother or sister gently. We can bear their burdens without feeling inferior, without feeling superior, and fulfill the law of Christ. You're my child, Christ says. I love you. And now go in my love and bear each other's burdens. Finally, evaluate accurately. Right? So I already said, what, treating others depends largely in measure of how we view ourselves. Folks with high opinion of themselves usually are reluctant to carry heavy burdens. They're, they're self-centered. They're self-sacrifice. They won't self-sacrifice. They're not going to get involved. Why would I get involved? Why would I change my plans? Why would I rearrange my schedules for you? Verse 3, Paul, think about what he's saying in verse 3. Listen, for if anyone thinks he is what? Something, when he is what? There you go. There's a motivational speech for you. Y'all think you're something, you're nothing. Go. I can't wait to get to work. I, you know, heard a story about Muhammad Ali. He was in a, got into an airplane. And the stewardess came by and said, you need to buckle your seat. He said, madam, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Which he replied, great, Superman don't need no plane either, okay? <laughs> Sooner or later, you're trusting in yourself, you're going to fall, right? I am the vine, you are the branches, you abide in me, I in you. It is he that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. John Calvin said, we have nothing of our own to boast about, but are destitute of every good thing. Everything we have comes from God. All the good we have is because Christ redeemed us. We are created by, by Christ. We are redeemed by Christ. And what Paul is inferring here seems to be that if we do not or will not bear one of those burdens because we think we're above that. It's demeaning to us. Right? If you think you're something, but when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and we recognize that apart from His grace, apart from His work, we are, we are guilty in rebellion, cosmic treason, guilty. But God in his love and mercy, how could we not? How could, how could we compare ourselves? How can we be inferior or superior? We will bear each other's burden, verse 4. But let each one, right? If you think you're something, you're not. Let each one, what? Test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself, not in his neighbor. There's a way to be concerned for others without comparing yourself to them. It's called self-examination. That's what Paul is saying. The word test, dakamazo, is a word that talks about testing something, a, a fiery test of gold to show its purity, 1 Peter 1.7. Now, some of you see this, and I say, you know, you need to test yourself. You need to examine yourself, and you're, that, that will freak you out, right? You'll be like, oh, my word, you'll spend your entire life navel glavic, you know, looking, just re-examining, examining, re-examining, and examining, and re-examining your, you know, your just mind is just going at it, right? You become paralyzed. That's not what he's saying. And some of you think, and I have nothing to look at. <laughs> Come on. Self-examination for what? If you ever been in a step program, you ever been in any uh, recovery program, part of the steps is self-inventory. Everybody should do it. It's wonderful. You don't stay there. You recognize that no matter what God shows you, it's okay. Why? Because I'm a blood-bought child of God. He's working in my life. He loves me. In fact, the, re- the, the reality that I actually see some stuff that needs to be worked on is an action of love. 
God's not going to keep you in your hard-headedness, being a knucklehead, right? He's working in your life. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. We're blood-bought children of God. We don't need to worry about what we discover, our faults, our failures. <laughs> don't change anything for my acceptance, for my justification. Nothing. It doesn't tarnish my identity. I'm a child of the king. Verse 5. Right, so see what he's saying? You think you're something, you're nothing, you're deceiving yourself. Test your own stuff, you're going to be accountable. And look at verse 5. For each one will bear his own load, right? In other words, instead of examining your neighbor, comparing yourself with people, test your own work, for then you'll be able to bear your own load. That is your responsibility before God. You're going to give an account of your life to him as his child. Now, you may say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor, wait a minute. Verse 1, right? Verse 1, burden bearing. Verse 2, excuse me, verse 2, bear one another's burden. You just said it's a heavy load. You can't do it yourself. You need help. And now you're saying, carry your own load. Well, which one is it? Am I needing help or should I carry my own? Okay, it's not a contradiction. Actually, in the original language, it's two very different Greek words. The verse two, baros, is that heavy weight, unbearable, can't carry it. You know when you get that phone call, something's going on. It is so heavy, verse two. But here in verse five, it's for tion, referring to a traveling pack, a, a backpack that you may carry to school or to work. So there's a difference, a heavy load and a light backpack. In Driscoll, one of his sermons, he says, this is how, he gives a test. I'm going to give you a test, okay? A young man who constantly gets up late for work or school every day because he stays up playing video games all night asks you to wake him every morning so he doesn't lose his job. Heavyweight, light backpack. Light backpack. A guy who spends all his money in beer, cigarettes, lottery tickets and refuses to look for a job but wants money from you. Heavy burden, light backpack. Light backpack. A married couple has three children. One day there's an accident. One of the parents dies in a car wreck. The remaining parent, the kids have needs. Heavy burden? Yes. A husband abandons his family. Leaves four kids. She needs help daily meeting daily responsibilities. Heavy burden? Light backpack. Heavy burden. See the difference? When the scripture says that everyone must carry his own weight, It has the lighter burden, the responsibility that you have with the gifts that God has given you, the talents that God has given you, the responsibilities that God has given you in mind. There's a weight that everyone must carry, the weight of our own personal responsibility for God, things that you just need to do. But we must always remember, in all of this, is the gospel. And the gospel which shows us our biggest and greatest and heaviest Burden, the infinite burden of our sin, our guilt, which is the very, very burden that's unbearable that only God could bear. There's one thing you must never try to bear on your own family. There's one thing you must never try to bear alone. It will crush you. It will crush me if you try to bear it. That is your own salvation. That is your own justification. Carrying the burden of your salvation and justification will crush you, me, or anyone who tries to bear it because there was one who already bore it, who carried our burdens and has already fulfilled that need. 
If we understand the gospel of grace, we will be able to carry others' burdens in love and not grow weary. Why? Because we can do it knowing that we're not doing it for our own justification, our own salvation. That heavy burden, that heavy lifting was complete and finished at the cross. We don't have to prove ourselves, prove our value. That burden was crushed by the burden bearer. His name is Jesus Christ. If you choose to carry the burden that you can't carry, if that's what something you want to do, what are we saying? We're saying, Christ, you were not enough. You, the burden bearer, could not carry my heavy load. But that's not what the Bible says. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, the the burden bearer. By his wounds we are healed, justified, forgiven, restored. He was crushed for our iniquities so that we can bear each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. So family, let's respond. As God reveals himself, we respond in worship. We respond in worship. We respond to the the one who carried our burdens our sorrows, most importantly, our sin. The problem is sin and the answer is Jesus. We have sinned and separated ourselves from God and God has come to us in the person of Christ, lived without sin. And when he died on the cross, he took our sins. He died as our substitute, bearing the wrath we deserve. Our sin was placed on him. He was punished for our sins and he died. Death is, being, is the wages of our sin, Romans tells us. He then, out of grace and mercy, not only dies for our sins, he places his righteousness, he imputes his righteousness to our account. And we love him for that. We love him for that. We worship him for all that he has done. Three days later, rose from the dead, conquering the enemies of sin and death. He gives us the Holy Spirit that changes our hearts and and, and wants to love him and to love others. And now that the Spirit of God leads us and empowers us, he compels us to Jesus, to the work of Christ. Second Corinthians says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Trust him, rest upon him. Deal with your inferiority, your superiority, your conceit, your provoking by resting in the gospel. And may that gospel fill our hearts and propel us, not only here, as this text tells us about our community, to loving each other in the gospel, through the gospel, but to the world, as we heard today. Let us pray. Father, may we never get tired of the gospel, as your servant Luther said, may we beat it in our heads regularly. And Father, may the love of the gospel, may the truth of our justification, may the truth of our acceptance has nothing to do with us, but all has to do with him, the Lord Jesus. May that propel us to love each other, to fulfill the law of Christ in our life, to love the stranger, to love the foreigner, to love our neighbor, to love our brothers and sisters. And may the love be our motive and may your word be our guide so that you get glory That people will see the beauty and glory of Christ in community. And they will also see the beauty and incalculable worth of Christ when we love others. Even around the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.